In the film in the late 90s, maybe you saw it called Grand Canyon, there's an immigration lawyer named Mac played by Kevin Klein. And he finds himself in a volatile situation when his expensive car breaks down in a bad part of LA late at night coming home from a Lakers game. And so seeing this, this white guy in an expensive car, this, this group of gangbangers approach the disabled car and they kind of flash a gun and they tap on the window and they demand that Mac get out of the car. You can imagine that, that moment, it's tense and he fears for his life. He doesn't know if it's better to stay in the car or to get out of the car. And at the right moment, the tow truck driver shows up. It's played, the guy's name is Simon. It's played by Danny Glover. And he steps out and he just kind of starts getting to work. He starts hooking up the car to the tow truck. And the, the gang members are looking at him like indignant. Like, How, don't you see what's going on here? You need to get in your truck and go home. But Simon just gets to work. So the leader of the gang tells him to back off and to, to get out of here if he knows what's good for him. And Simon just kind of stands tall and says, who's the leader of this group? And the guy says, man, I am. And he says, man, come over here for a second. And so he, they pull off to the side and they have this little side conversation. And Simon begins to just explain to him, look, man, I'm, I'm just trying to do my job and I, and I gotta get this car towed. And after a few minutes of back and forth, Simon says these words to the leader. He says, man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. See, I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude over there, he's supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. Now, you don't need a PhD or a master's in theology or really even belief in God, for that matter, to know and to look around and say, something's wrong. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. In fact, I've had conversations with hundreds and hundreds of people. Never once have I met someone who says, no, 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 no. This is a good world. There's nothing broken here. All you need to be able to come to that conclusion is to be human. Cornelius Planinga other than having an awesome name. I mean, when you're born like that, you're just destined to be a theologian, right? He's got a book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. It's one of the best books I've ever read on how sin has broken God's good world and broken shalom. And he goes on and he starts the book and he starts talking about what shalom is. It's this Hebrew word that your Bibles normally translate as peace. But you see, our understanding of peace doesn't quite capture all that is in shalom. So here's what Plantinga says. He says, shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation, and justice, fulfillment, and delight. More than peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies, shalom is universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. Shalom is this rich state of affairs in which Natural needs are satisfied and natural giftings are fruitfully employed. It's a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. He concludes by saying, shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. We all know that this is not the way it's supposed to be. Shalom is the way it's supposed to be. And sin is the vandalism of shalom. It's the shattering of shalom. 
See, shalom is not merely a description of the absence of all the negative. It's a declaration of the wholeness and fullness of all that is good and true and beautiful. But we all know that's not the world that we live in. We live in a world where the paradise of Hawaii was recently overshadowed by a 30,000 foot ash cloud as the Kilauea volcano erupted alongside a 6.9 magnitude earthquake and all the destruction and devastation that flows from it. See, we live in a world where it's been nine months since Hurricane Maria made landfall and the people in Puerto Rico are still in a state of recovery from the devastation that crippled that island and killed more than 5,000 men and women and children. We live in a world where Sutherland Springs, Texas and Parkland, Florida joined the ranks of Columbine and Sandy Hook as communities forever changed by unthinkable violence and tragedy. See, we live in a world right now where we are witnessing the highest levels of displacement on record. Did you know that an unprecedented 65.9 million people around the world right now have been forced from their homes? To put that large number in, per, uh, in perspective, every, 20 min, or every minute, 20 people are forcibly displaced from their home as a result of conflict or persecution. We live in a world where Roseanne Barr can incite fury and harm with a single tweet and blame Ambien instead of taking responsibility. We live in a world where this week Starbucks closed down 8,000 stores for four hours to conduct racial bias training for its employees. So if on Tuesday you were jonesing for some caffeine, a caramel macchiato at two o'clock, couldn't do it, closed down. Why'd they have to do that? Because a store in Philly poorly handled a situation where two black men were asked to leave and cops called on them simply because they hadn't purchased anything yet. And both this week, the left and the right were launching missiles at each other for how Starbucks handled it. In fact, not only do we have conflict, but we have conflict about the conflict. That's the world we live in. You can't go onto Facebook or Twitter without seeing tweets and comments spewing slander and hateful speech to others. I could go on and on. Did you know the hardest thing in writing this sermon was not was deciding what to leave out of this introduction. There was just a there was so much. It was hard to decide what what can I, what do I leave out? So many examples to choose from to illustrate that we live in a world that has lost all semblance of what peace and wholeness means. So the question I want to ask this morning is, how in the world do we find peace in a world of conflict and chaos? That's the question we want to answer as we start our Summer in the Psalms series. See, in a world that's broken at every level, how do we find peace? Psalm 120 gives us three essentials to finding peace and wholeness in a world of conflict and brokenness. And the writer, the, all the Psalms really do this. This writer is going to invite us into his struggle. And as he does, we're going to find a pattern to follow. We're going to see that to find peace, we need prayer, we need patience, and we need perspective. That's our three points today. We need prayer, patience, and perspective. So let's start in verse one and see the first essential of prayer. Now, as you're turning to Psalm 120, if you're using the black Bibles underneath your seat, it's on page 516, page 516 in the black Bibles. I'm gonna give a brief introduction into the book of Psalms. You see, the Psalms are poetry in the form of a song. They're lyrics, really. They're meant to engage the mind and the heart and the soul. 
In the Psalms, you're going to see God as he actually is, not as we wish him to be. We're going to see that he's more holy and more wise and more fearsome and more just and more tender and more loving than we can imagine him to be on our own. And the other thing I love about the Psalms is that you're going to find every single human emotion and every type of situation that you're going to face in life. Tim Keller, speaking of the Psalms, says, the Psalms are not just a matchless primer of teaching, but it's a medicine chest for the heart and the best possible guide for practical living. That's our hope this summer as we dive into this book, that it would be a medicine chest for our heart as well as a practical guide for daily living. And this summer, we're gonna go through the Psalms of Ascent, this uh, Psalm 120 through 134. And like I said earlier, it's this little booklet inside of the book of Psalms. And it was gathered and collected together to be songs for the pilgrims to sing. That's when no matter where they were, as they were coming into Jerusalem for the Holy Feast each year, that they would have something to sing in and mark their journey. And so Psalm 120 begins that journey And as we just heard it read, you heard that this psalmist is pictured as being far from home. He's living among strangers. There's a deep homesickness. He's unsettled and he can't find peace. So with that introduction, let's look at Psalm 120, verse one and two. He says this, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. So right off the bat, we hear that the psalmist is in distress. Now this word for distress isn't a mild one. This isn't something minor. It describes a dire situation. See, distress is the opposite of peace. It has this idea of being tied up, bound up, wrapped up, and shut up. In fact, this Hebrew word has the idea of a narrow, confined space. Imagine being in a room and all the walls are closing in. Anyone here struggle with claustrophobia? You're kind of like, ah, but that's how he feels. So what's he facing that has him feeling trapped? Well, he tells us. It's a lying, it's a lying lips and a deceitful tongue. And here we don't know the exact situation for sure, which is honestly really helpful for us because it allows us to fill in the blanks with our own story so that we can enter in to this psalm. Have you ever been the victim of lying lips and a deceitful tongue? See, we know what it's like to be the victim of lies and deception. Think slander and gossip. The Hebrew word for deceit here carries the the idea of shooting with an arrow. So it's like someone taking their words with careful aim, deliberate planning, and shooting to kill. That's what this guy is facing right now. So maybe you grew up hearing words like, fat and ugly. Maybe you heard stupid, lazy. You're just good for nothing. You're a loser. Those are careful and deliberate words meant to harm. And maybe those words stuck. And no matter how hard you try, you can't shake that identity now. What about when someone goes behind your back and begins to spin lies about your reputation and character? What about when someone takes a truth and twists it so that you look like the bad guy? What about when someone takes credit for your work or steals your idea and promotes it as their own? 
What about when someone takes your words out of context and before you know it, people have a false perception about you? Or what about when someone goes on a smear campaign and you feel powerless and no matter what kind of damage control you try to do, the damage has been done. You walk into a room and you feel like everybody's been talking about you. You ever had those moments? And in the wake, you feel stuck and imprisoned by their words. Everything you do from this point on will now be interpreted by their lies. Another way to think about slander and deceit is it's like quicksand. See, you walk up to quicksand and it has the appearance of being firm ground, but it's actually a trap. It's deceptive. And when you're caught in it, the natural reaction is to do what? Try to fight your way out of it. But see, the thing with quicksand is the more you fight, the tighter the grip becomes and the faster you sink. The sand presses in and you feel powerless to do anything about it. The psalmist has been trapped by deceitful words and he feels them closing in, crushing him from every side. And what happens when you try to defend yourself against deceit and slander? It usually gets worse, doesn't it? Right? You ever felt like that? Where someone's words were like quicksand and you felt stuck and no matter what you tried to do, you just felt like you kept sinking and couldn't get out. Anyone remember the children's song? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Couldn't be further from the truth, right? What are we teaching these kids? <laughs> you sing it as a child, but then you grow up and you realize, no, no, words have razor sharp edges. They cut to your soul. And not only that, they leave behind a poison that kills you from the inside out. There's a man named Sean Coyzan. He's a poet from Canada. And he has this amazing spoken word called To This Day. You should really look it up on YouTube. It's powerful. Uh, but it talks about how, the, uh, how words have the power to harm. I'm going to quote just a section of it. He writes this. I'm not the only kid who grew up this way, surrounded by people who used to say that rhymes about sticks and stones, as if broken bones hurt more than the names we got called. And we got called them all. And so we grew up believing no one would ever fall in love with us, that we'd be lonely forever, that we'd never meet someone to make us feel like the sun was something they built for us in their tool shed. So broken heartstrings bled the blues, and we tried to empty ourselves so we would feel nothing. Don't tell me that hurts less than a broken bone, that an ingrown life is something surgeons can cut away and that there's no way for it to metastasize because it does. Do you feel the hurt and the pain there? That's what the psalmist is feeling. He's feeling the pressure of words, and in his distress, he calls out to the Lord. How do we find peace in a world of chaos? We turn to God in prayer. That's where the psalmist goes. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon wrote on this psalm. He said, when cries to man would be our weakness, cries to God will be our strength. To whom should children cry but to their father? When we're in pain, when words feel like arrows to your soul, where do you go? I know we've been talking about distress caused by lies and deception, but it doesn't have to be limited to that. 
Distress can come in all kinds of forms. So maybe another way to say it is, where do you go when it feels like peace is nowhere to be found? I'll be vulnerable and honest with you this morning. If I'm honest with you, when I feel like peace is nowhere to be found, I'm quick to turn to myself. I'm quick to control encounter. I want to assess the situation, come up with a game plan, and then I want to launch a counterattack. Whoever's shattering the shalom of my life better watch out. That's my gut reaction. But what about you? When you feel like peace is threatened in your life, do you fight or do you flight? Do you go tell your friends? Do you write it in your journal? Do you write weird cryptic messages on Facebook? I've seen those. The, the psalmist models here for us a right first step. Go to God in prayer. Our help, first and foremost, comes from God. And we are so quick to read over these quick verses but we shouldn't look over the fact that he says, I called to the Lord and what? He answered. See, God is our ever-present help. He doesn't grow weary in hearing our prayers like I do at the end of the day. So the psalmist doesn't wait until he's better to go to God. He doesn't wait till he's got it all together. He goes to God in the midst of his hurt, in his rawness, in his pain. And what's amazing is that he's met there by the God of truth and love. His truth is able to bring clarity to the lies and his love is able to comfort us in our time of need. See, before we've come to God, we're too raw and hurt to respond rightly. See, if you try to go out in your hurt and rawness to fix the situation, you're too vulnerable. You're likely just to lash out with vengeance and vitriol and make it worse. Or maybe you're the kind who likes to just go retreat and be solo all by yourself. But in that case, you're too likely to start believing those lies about yourself. See, when we go to God in prayer, he meets us there in a way that's really hard to describe in words. It's in these intimate moments where our pain is on display and he's able to bring healing. He becomes an anchor in the storm. He gives us a plan for deliverance. And so instead of fighting against the quicksand, he becomes a lifeline to pull us out. We're freed from the cycle of retaliation and we find strength to be someone who stops gossip and slander instead of spreading more lies and venom and vitriol. We find love and acceptance even if, check this out, our distress is caused by our own failures. Because see, it's not always just other people attacking us. Sometimes we attack ourselves, but his grace and mercy and love covers over the multitude of our sin. And when we start to see that, even though we feel stress, we see that he is unshakable and steady. His peace starts to become our peace. We come to him in distress, but he's the firm and solid ground that we can begin to stand. So how do we find peace in the midst of a world of chaos? stress, first we go to God in prayer. But not only do we need prayer to find peace, we also need patience. Look with me at verse three and four. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Now remember, these verses are still part of his prayer. 
He's gone to God in prayer, and now he's actually rehearsing a truth that we find in Scripture. He's not speaking to his, his oppressor. He's not spitting venom at his enemies. He's declaring the fact that God routinely says all throughout Scripture, vengeance is mine. I will deal justly with injustice. So he says, what's going to happen to the one who's slandering him and deceiving him? A warrior's sharp arrows and the glowing coals of the broom tree. It's actually poetic justice. See, for the one who's used their words like arrows, they're going to be met with the arrows of God's truth and his justice. For the distress that he's caused, stress like burning coals will come down on him. The broom tree had roots that burned really well and actually made remarkable charcoal. And so if you were out grilling in the backyard in ancient Israel, you wanted broom tree. It was the Kingsford of their day. What he's saying is that he can have patience now in the midst of oppression because he knows ultimately the Lord will bring about justice in his timing, in his way. God has designed a world that ultimately, one way or another, oppressors will fall into their own traps, usually resulting in poetic justice. What's the point? Our sin eventually catches up with us. So sometimes in this life, people who are uh, um, spitting venom and vitriol, they'll experience minor judgment. Maybe it comes through our civil law system, or maybe sometimes it's just natural consequences. But ultimately, every sin will be met with justice. See, the psalmist is longing for peace, and he's called out to the Lord in prayer, and now he begins to be grounded by truth. It starts to settle him, and it starts to produce patience in him as he realizes that God is in control, and God will have the final word. Now, we have to address something in our culture because we have a hard time with the justice of God. So we love, 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 love the idea of a forgiving and loving God, but we just start to cringe at the thought of a holy, right, and just God. But family, we have to lean into that truth this morning. You see, you can't have a God of love if he's not at the same time a God of justice. His wrath against sin, his settled opposition to sin and death and destruction is actually part of his plan to bring shalom back to the world. You can't fix what's broken without cleaning up the mess, right? When something is broken, the first thing you gotta do is clean up the mess. So he's gotta rid the world of all that seeks to destroy and unravel it. When you go to clean your room or your home, what are you doing? You're actually executing judgment. You look at the room and you say, there's gotta be a better way than this. And maybe you don't, but you really should, okay? Students, I'm talking to you, all right? You walk into your room and you execute judgment. And you say, all that is filthy and disordered needs to come under control. You get rid of what is dirty and you bring order to the chaos. See, when you truly love something, you can't just stand idly by and watch it be destroyed. In fact, loving my family means protecting them and standing in stark opposition to anything that would seek to harm or destroy them, right? Love actually fuels and motivates God's judgment. He's not having a temper tantrum. He's perfectly loving, perfectly just at the exact same time. So let's keep doing a little more work because 
even though we experience at times when, uh, that we're victims and, um, and oppressed, there are also times, if we're honest, that we are the perpetrators and the oppressors, right? Because it's not just the story of our lives that we've always been victimized. Sometimes we're the one spitting it out. It's one of the paradoxes of the Christian life, that we're both the oppressed and that we're, at the same time, oppressors. We've been part of the vandalism of God's shalom. It's one of the first realities you have to come to as you step into a relationship with Christ is to realize, I'm part of the problem. So the question is, how do we make it past his judgment? If God is bringing judgment, how do we make sure we don't get swept up in the fray? This is why the cross is central to our faith. This is the, the cross is actually God's judgment against sin. Christ took judgment that we deserved, and he gave us the acceptance and status as sons and daughters that we could never achieve on our own. That's why Paul says that the record of debt has been nailed to the cross. The account of our sin has been nailed there, and because he died, it is paid in full. For all those who receive Christ, we are debt-free. We're innocent of the crimes that we've committed because Christ served our sentence for us. He took on that judgment in our place. That's why we can endure our distress with patience. We can face opposition and experience life in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be, knowing that justice will come and make all things right. And know that in Christ, we will survive that judgment. At the same time, we can desire our oppressors would experience the same grace and forgiveness that's been extended to us. Because see, when you realize that you've been one of the perpetrators, that you've been one to vandalize shalom, when you realize that you're no better than anyone else, that frees you up to say, for your crimes committed against me, my first preference is that you would experience grace and forgiveness. We can long for all people, even our enemies, to come to grace. More than wanting someone to see justice, the hope of the believer is that we, they would see Jesus. It's not an either or, it's a both and. When you're sinned against, you can have patience knowing God will bring justice no matter what. And at the same time, you can extend the grace and forgiveness to your enemies, hoping that they would come to see the goodness, truth, and beauty of the gospel. See, justice and grace, both of them are the pathways of God to lead this world back to shalom. It's his way to cleanse and redeem and restore what's been lost and make the world whole again. We can have patience now knowing that justice is coming. There's no opposition or oppression that you face that won't ultimately one day be made right by God. At the same time, we can desire everyone would meet Jesus, repent, and believe in him so that they'd be met with grace as well. So when we feel our world collapsing and peace is fleeting, go to God in prayer. And also remember to be patient. Trust God to be both loving and just. And finally, our third point today is that peace comes when we have the right perspective. Look with me at verse five. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but they are for war. 
the psalm doesn't end like we would expect. When I was reading it, you, you, you kind of went like there was one more line to kind of tie it all up and wrap it up in a pretty bow, but there's not. And as I was looking at it this week, I found that so comforting. You know why? Because life doesn't always get wrapped up in a tight, pretty bow. This isn't some overly triumphalistic or sentimental song where the psalmist finds immediate healing, goes on to their oppressor, and they become best friends and move in and live next door to each other, right? No pat answers are given, no unrealistic ending. He concludes by saying, woe to me. He's in pain. He's not even completely over the hurt yet. Wounds haven't totally healed. And for all we know, the situation may still be in progress. We see that we can be in a place where we bring our pain to God. We can be affirmed and comforted by the truths and still wake up the next day and say, woe to me. The psalm teaches us that it's okay to not be okay. I don't know, I hope that's freeing for some of you who might be in a place of chaos and conflict. You don't have to hide or pretend with God. Our sorrow, our self-pity may not always be the right or best response, but here's the beauty. It is a real response, and God's love for you and acceptance for you is not based on your performance, so you don't have to get it right. That should free you to be both real and honest with God and with yourself. You don't have to pretend with him. So the psalmist says, woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach and dwell among the tents of Kedar. What on earth does that mean? These are two ancient cities that were geographically pretty far from each other, but they both represented cities that were unfriendly and hostile to the Jewish way of life. Those would be places you wouldn't want your car to break down in. In fact, you'd try to avoid these cities altogether. For the Christian today, it might be like saying something like this. Woe to me that I sojourn in Syria and that I dwell among the tents of Isis. Right now, those are not safe places to be a Christian and hang out. So what the psalmist is saying is he feels far from home, and though he's a, he desires peace, he finds that he lives in a world of chaos and conflict. And I hope you can resonate with the psalmist this morning. He's painting a picture of the life of a pilgrim. We're on a journey, every one of us and we're not home yet. And there's gonna be times when you feel like a stranger in a strange land. Did you know that for the last several years, New England has been listed on uh, every list you can imagine as the most post-Christian, least Bible-minded region in the United States? Even if you didn't know those stats, you probably feel it as you interact with your neighbors, as you're meeting families in Little League, as you're going about your work week, you probably felt like, man, I live among a group of people who are completely and totally disinterested in God. The truth of the Bible is ancient, outdated, and irrelevant. They look at us and say, man, your beliefs have not evolved, right? As believers, we live in a world that can be very hostile to our beliefs, our values, our morals, and our truth. So how do we respond to that? Well, the first thing is we don't attack. You don't see the psalmist here attacking. We don't belittle. We don't go on the offensive. What do we do first? We pray. We pray for peace in the midst of conflict. We gain right perspective. We realize that because of Jesus, we know that victory over sin and death is ours. That there's coming a day when every wrong will be made right. Every injustice will be brought to justice. For the Christian, if your reputation's been under attack, you realize 
Man, my, my reputation is ultimately wrapped up in the reputation of Jesus. If people have robbed you, you realize my inheritance is tied to Christ. So ultimately, we have nothing to fear. There is no distress that will conquer you. Do you hear that in our assurance of pardon today? Nothing can overwhelm us. We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Our victory is secure and it is coming. But we live in the here and now. And that victory isn't finally and fully applied to us, is it? So there'll be times when it seems like those who harm us get away with it. But ultimately, we know there's coming a day when all will be made right. This psalm ends with the right kind of perspective that we need to have. See, he's found peace and a resolve to live in a world where we're in a state of betweenness. See, the peace that God gives is real, but it's not a peace that the world recognizes or even accepts. We live in this state of in-betweenness, between the already and the not yet. We know that victory is coming And we know that significant progress has been made, but it hasn't been fully applied yet. So that's where we live too. The psalm has this tension in it between promise and fulfillment, between peace and um, conflict, hope and sorrow, relief and resistance, exile and home. And he's living right in the tension in between those two poles. And that's where we live too. And when we have that kind of perspective, it allows us to have a realistic expectation that in and of itself will give us peace. I want to close today by looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, because it shows how Jesus modeled this perfectly for us. We'll have the words up here on the screen. Listen to what Peter writes. He says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. Let me stop right there. See, Jesus knew true distress. He knew that words could wound. You know, during his life as a child, Jesus endured the glare and the passing remarks of those who questioned his legitimacy of his birth and the purity of his mother. Can you imagine growing up with that kind of reputation surrounding your family? And as he grew up during his ministry, people often questioned his motives and his intentions. They slandered his good name. People said, man, Jesus, he's demon-possessed. He might even be in full cooperation with Satan himself. He was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because he ate with sinners. In his trial, he was mocked at every turn. And then when the ver- that verbal abuse turned violent, didn't it? He was beat. He was scourged. He was strung up on a cross with false uh, accusations with no evidence. That's true distress. So what did he do in the midst of all that? Did he retaliate? Did he revile back? Peter says no, he didn't. He lived a life of honesty. No deceit was found in his mouth. And when he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he trusted. In his hour of greatest distress, what did he do? He called out to God in prayer. And he knew that with his father, he could be honest about his fear of suffering. In the midst of his execution, he didn't stop praying. He continued to pray to God. And instead of fighting back, he could have called down an army 
of angels. But instead of fighting back, he laid down his arms to be nailed to the cross. He didn't call down burning coals on those who strung him up on the tree. What did he call down? Forgiveness and peace as he prayed and asked for their forgiveness, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In his distress, Jesus prayed, and he had patience, and he trusted himself to the God who judges justly. Look at verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus endured the cross because he knew that God's plan for redemption required him to lay down his life. He had perspective. He knew that bearing our sins in his body meant that we could live. He had the perspective to know that he would be wounded so that we could be healed. He knew that we would stray, but because of his sacrifice, we would be brought near. Lost sheep gathering back to the good shepherd. So how can we come to God in prayer with patience and the right perspective when it feels like our world is crashing down? Because Jesus paved the way for us. He not only gave his life as an example for us, but with Christ, he lives in us. So we're not alone. The psalm is a prayer for us when we feel like a stranger in a distant land, facing hostility and deceit. And we can have peace primarily because Christ himself has not only secured our peace, but he himself is our peace. When the walls of our world are closing in, go to God in prayer. He draws near to the brokenhearted. And there we find comfort in communion with him. And it's in that place that we start to be, be healed by his truth and his love. And we find strength to have patience in the midst of our struggle. And it's there that we begin to gain that godly kind of perspective. We'll be renewed, we'll be revived to live another day as sojourners in a distant and hostile land. Let's pray.